So this is Free Me Podcast, as promised, prompt as always, bringing you the magnificent Moshe that's going to lead us in this evening's prayer. So for those that want to join in, please join in. For those that don't, come back in a couple minutes and we'll be ready to rock. The floor is yours, Moshe. Allah, white bomb. Alhamdulillah,
Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Thank you, my brother. Man, that was that was beautiful, man. Thank you, thank you for bringing me into your home and and allowing me to to be part of that, man. That was that was beautiful. Okay, this is Free Me Podcast. We're back with the discussion portion of of this evening's program. Um, Mr. Moshe took us through a a beautiful sermon, man. I did not know that that you could sound. I got lost in your voice, man. I really did. And, you know, for me, I'm I'm not a religion. I don't subscribe to religion, but I'm very spiritual. And, and, uh, when 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 I, I just go into a meditative state and and your voice like I would close my eyes and your voice just soothed me man it made it so easy for me to transition into into just a, a relaxed state to where I can just reflect on my day so I mean my day is done with that thank you I, I appreciate that that was beautiful brother you're welcome so walk me through that 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 whole prayer and 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 all of all of what that is yeah thank you for your question bro so the salat as we say in arabic um we we were taught as muslims the community the international community the global community of islam was taught how to pray as you saw me pray the way the prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam peace be upon him prayed so all of the mechanisms, the mechanics, everything that's associated with the prayer, whether you, you heard me say Allah, which, which indicates Allah is the greatest, this is what enters me into my prayer and all of the mechanics that followed along that process. This is what ultimately enters me into the prayer, but this is what focused one on 
the, uh, the obligations of what accompanies that process. So everything has a meaning from the time that you raise your hand to where you're putting them on your chest. Some say it's permissible for you to put it on your stomach. Um, for you going into your knees, which is a position called ruku, until um, so you, you're standing back up. Uh, the goal is that each part of your body is in total submission. But it's not something that I'm doing at my own accord. It's something that was taught to us by the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. So as Muslims, we, we, we strive to, to the best of our ability to emulate the example that he set. And um, that's what, what you just observed. Now, do you do that five times a day or is that just the evening ritual? Alhamdulillah, just for the question is, is, is great. You know, well, it's a, a great question. So thank you for that. And to answer your question, yes, we, we definitely do that at a bare minimum of five times a day. So you have your morning prayer, which is known as the Fajr prayer. This is when the, the sun is about to rise. You have your afternoon prayer, which is known as Dhur. Um, you have your um, late afternoon prayer, which is known as Asr. And what you just observed me pray, which is when the sun sets, this is called Maghrib. Maghrib indicates that the sun is setting in the west now. Maghrib means west in Arabic. So that's why it's called Maghrib. And finally, you have the last prayer of the day, which is called Isha. Those five prayers are, are oblig obligatory upon the Muslim Jama'ah, the Muslim community. Um, there are additional prayers that you can offer throughout the course of the day, known as Nawafil. So these are additional prayers that are highly recommended. Or you have prayers like Sunnah prayer. There's different variations of Sunnah prayer. Some that are highly recommended, some that are recommended, etc. Um, and then you have those prayers like what's known as during the month. Thankfully, we're in the month of Ramadan. So mm -hmm. you have prayers such as Tarawih. You see, these are prayers you offer in the Masajid, in the Masjid, um, with others in congregation. Um, the, the units of it, you saw me do three units in this prayer. The units may increase. Um, but in addition to that, you have what's known as like uh, Tahajud. Uh, these prayers are continuous throughout the day. You know, you, 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 a Muslim has to pray at a bare minimum five times a day. But there are, there are some Muslims who pray 10, 15, 20 times a day. And it increases depending on your level of, of, of faith in one's heart. Mm -hmm. As you want to get closer and closer to your Lord, to Allah, mm -hmm. you pray more and more and more. Uh, that's amazing. Now, those prayers, like what you just did, like every Muslim around the world was doing what you were doing at that precise time, give or take, you know, but. Yes, yes, yes. That's, a great, that's amazing. That's a great question. Thank you for asking that. So there are over a billion Muslims in the world. So ideally, mm -hmm. no matter where you are at, no matter what your circumstances are, ideally, every Muslim, like you said, should be praying. Um, it doesn't matter if you're in Alaska. It doesn't matter if you're in Brooklyn. It doesn't matter if you're in Ghana. It doesn't matter if you're in Great Britain, Latin America. Whenever the sun is setting, you are to offer three rakats, and this would indicate that you are following, at the bare minimum, the, the example of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. 
So the importance of that is that there is uniformity in the prayer because all Muslims are doing exactly what they know to be uh, what the Prophet taught his, his, his followers to do. Mm. So, so Moshe, I mean, take me, take me from womb to womb. Take me from your birth to, to your rebirth and, and everything that happened through that and, and to how you became the, the, the disciplined man that I see in front of me now, you know? Well, thank you for the question. So, so I'm, I, was, I was born and raised in East New York, Brooklyn. I'm, 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 a, I'm, a, I'm a 70s baby. I was born in 77. So I grew up in a very violent community. But my household wasn't like that, right? I come from a, a very, very structured background. My father, his name is Sokas Papa Song Kansi. He was a temp dan in martial arts. He established his own system of fighting. He was a grandmaster, in fact. Um, along with two of his other colleagues, they established their own system known as Kuroshi Do. So my father was a, a world-renowned martial artist. Right? Mm. Um, he studied up under some of the greats, um, Dr. Moses Powell and um, Charles Elmore and Charles Farrell, among other many, many great names that we know um, the world has become aware of. Um, and then my mother was, you know, they both were byproducts of Brownsville. So I grew up in that mode. Um, I was raised in both East New York and Brownsville. Mm. So being born in the 70s, but being raised in the 80s, you know, I, I, I learned to um, develop some very, very core principles on how to live and conduct myself early on by my elders. Um, my parents were just instrumental in helping in that, in that process. In addition to my parents, I had community leaders, family members, etc., who did everything in their power to help guide me along the right path. Um, you know, you know how it is when you're young, you think you know everything, and you <laughs> end up disregarding those jewels that's bestowed upon you, and you try to take matters into your own hand and do the things that you feel you want to do when you want to do it. For me, it was no different. You know, just being a young individual in the hood trying to follow behind the older dudes who I was trying to seek validation from. And I think that's what my biggest issue was as a young individual. Although my parents did everything in their power to instill certain values, morals, and principles in, in me, um, I still was struggling with a lot of, not necessarily esteem issues or insecurity issues. But after my father and my mother separated, I definitely had this, this feeling of um, seeking a abandonment issue, so to speak, this fear of being abandoned. Um, and I, I now know that my seeking validation from my peers in the streets was directly correlated with the, the absence of my father, um, that trying to fill that void and stuff like that. So I did, I did a lot of foolish stuff. I mean, at what age father, was that? Um, well, my father and my mother separated at, well, I was, I was at the age of three. And, um, mm. Um, but that didn't mean that my father wasn't actively in my life. In spite of that, I spent a significant amount of my childhood with my father. Um, not just me, but, you know, I have a bunch of brothers and sisters who we 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 owe our, our all to in terms. I mean, my father's, um, I respect my father in that regard for him moving around and making moves and doing what he was doing. So I have, I have brothers and siblings that, that I'm very thankful for. Um, with that being the case, you know, I, I ran the streets, um, being disobedient. But it wasn't something I had to do. 
I, I, I didn't come from, a, let's say, a dysfunctional home. Um, although poverty existed within the community, um, there, there wasn't, I never knew what struggle was in that regard. And I didn't come from that. So my reason for going out to the streets was because I was just was a knucklehead trying to fit in. And it was just a, uh, one of those decisions that I knew me and a lot of my, my peers did. We, 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 was, we was out in the streets trying to support each other and seeing who can do the most foolishness. Um, you know, the problem with that is that over the course of time, you know, you begin to compete for um, who can do the most foolish act today. You know, today's Thursday, so tomorrow, you know, we're going to go out there tomorrow night and we're going to do whatever it is that we can possibly do to get our name up. Um, and as you, you engage in that street life, unfortunately, some of us excel past others. Um, and I was no different. So amongst, you know, my crew, I was just one of, known as one of those individuals who was willing to go to the fullest extent, fullest extent of whatever was required. If it meant holding my hood down, I was going to be the first one that was there. If another, if another neighborhood came, I was going to be on the front lines. You know? So um, whatever it took for us to do, um, you know, I was going to be there. Um, and I, you know, the problem that now I realize is that, you know, when you create this monster, so to speak, it gets to the point where it gets out of control. And I think for me, it was no different that it metastasized. It got so horrific that I created this monster to the extent that now people were expecting me to respond to certain things before I, I was even expected to do so. Right. Um, and it put you in a corner. Put me in a big, big corner. And then, you know, this is when you lose control because you no longer have control over yourself. Um, and then everybody else has control over yep. you. You're a puppet. You become a puppet of your own yeah. ignorance. Of your own ignorance. Yeah. So uh, that's amazing because your your father's a, a world renowned martial artist. So the the discipline again you you're you're born and bred under discipline, right? So it's it's amazing that you still took to the street under under that amount of discipline, right? What was your mom's like? So my mother was very very structured as well. Uh, she was a disciplinary. When I got out of line, my mom put hands and feet on straight like that <laughs> she didn't play no game um and i'm thankful for that because you know although she's no longer with us i will mm, say that her. yeah thank you brother i will say that every time i won't say every time but the decisions that i make today as an adult i always have to revert back to much of the lessons that my mother bestowed upon me and i can hear her now in my head constantly saying didn't i tell you so didn't i tell you so um, or when you get older, you will understand exactly what I'm saying. And I've gotten to a point in my life where, yeah, you know what? My mother was right. I do understand what she was saying. So my mother was very, very shrewd. Um, she wasn't a street, a street disciple, but she wasn't ignorant of the streets neither. Um, my mother was educated. She graduated from college. She stressed education in the home when I got out of line. And when it wasn't about putting her hands and feet on me, one of my punishments was I had to read the encyclopedia. I had to read and not only read it, but I had to write assignments mm. out of the encyclopedia. So I was very, very smart. But at the same time, I chose to make poor decisions. So administrators in my school couldn't understand how could a kid be so bright, but yet his behavior is so horrible. And that's the challenge that I was faced with as a youngster. So 
what what is your lineage like have you tried to trace your roots back as far as as you can to to know what your lineage is like you know for me i, I i'm in a quest to where I want to know where my bloodline has been because I look at myself now that uh, here I was, I was so egotistical and so selfish, man, that I'm taking my life and doing whatever I please with it. Not really understanding that for millennia, I've had a bloodline that has been putting in blood, sweat and tears, murder, death, whatever my bloodline has been through to get me right here to where I'm at to continue my bloodline. And, and I'm not even taking those things into consideration, you know? And, and now I'm looking at that and it's, it's altered my life because now I want to trace those steps back and see like, was there a direct path that my lineage was on? How did I get over here to, to America? Where did all that come from? You know what I mean? What was their plan? So have you done that with your life? Yes, you know, the, the the strange thing is that, so my, my family, we have all made an effort to try to connect with the past. And the Canty name, while not a, a unique one, um, it, it is, thankfully, is one that has been recorded. And we have done everything in our power to actually make those connections. So there are different lineages that I, I, I am thankful for that are in my bloodline, right? One, one lineage is that um, we were from South Carolina, obviously in the, in the Gullah, you know, right? In the Carolinas, in, in Bennettsville, in, 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 in Orangeburg, in, in Spartanburg, et cetera, right? Um, so I have family that runs deep within that, all right? Then there's, then there's a line that I've been taught, and, and I don't even know if this is true or not, but we're still investigating this. I've been told this by my elders, but it hasn't been confirmed by me, that we may have roots in the, the Bahamas. Um, I've been told that it's been Barbados, you know, and stuff like that. The, 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 the harsh part for me, now I know that we can do the whole gene, you know, genealogical trace through DNA and stuff like that and through certain sites that offer those services. Um, these are the, the unfortunate, the unforeseen, or maybe even foreseen consequences of the transatlantic slave trade, where mm-hmm. unfortunately many of our people who um, were born in the, in the diaspora were un- are unable to make the connection with our past. So my family, particularly the Canties, that is, we're able to trace it back for five, six generations, right? There is evidence that there were individuals with the name Canty. Um, but then we realized that there is a, there's a portion that goes into um, Europeans who had the name Canty. And this is when mem- members of my family say, all right, this, we had nothing to do with that. Thing. This, is, this is not family, right? Um, and, but, you know, so the, the point is, is that we're doing everything in our power to try to connect with our past. There's been some challenges, obviously, because it's not just something you can click the light on and figure out. Um, but we definitely do it. But to answer your question, do I really know with 100 degrees certainty of where my people owe their origin from, my tribe particularly? The answer would be no. Um, I would just have to say that just like any other black man who was born in America who has family members who unfortunately we're on slave plantations that, um, you know, we, we are descendants of the land known as the motherland. So let me ask you, right. As, as a man, because I, I was born in 75, so we kind of came up, um, in, in the same era. Right. So I remember going to school and, and I remember 
eight, nine, 10 years old being Thanksgiving coming around, you know, and we'd put up all the turkeys on the wall and we put up all the pilgrims and make all the happy scenes and stuff. And we would learn about Christopher Columbus and how wonderful he was, how he came over and landed on Plymouth Rock and shook hands and traded with all the Indians and, and all of these things. So as a black man that's coming up, knowing, right, like you and your family are trying to trace lineage through through the, the transatlantic slave trade, and you're just trying to find out who your family was. And you can't because of the, the real truth and the facts of who Christopher Columbus was and, and all the ones that came behind him. So how does it, how does it feel for you and your family, you know, to, to hear me say something um, like, you know, Christopher Columbus was a good person or the things that they say about him was a lie or he did found America or, you know, just this miseducation that's been put on us as white people. Well, thank you for the question. That's actually a great question. So the first part, I'll answer it in two parts. The first part is that I was thankful in spite of not having um, direct knowledge of who we were connected to um, in the past or um, genealogically. I, my father raised us to be very pro-black. That doesn't mean, that didn't mean that we did we admit the exclusion of other ethnicities or individuals, right? It just meant that you had a sense of who you were, of where we, of, from whence we come as a people, um, and the accomplishments that our people gave to the world so that we wouldn't look at our current conditions and believe that this is who we were and allow ourselves to perpetuate a cycle of ignorance, right, based on this experience in the diaspora. Now, the second part of that question is, uh, thank you again, that's a great question. Um, I think that it's very disheartening to be in America knowing its history and knowing that people choose to disregard the truth. H however, um, because I would say that to some extent, my family is very culturally in tune, there is a level of understanding of those individuals who, who, those individuals who do perpetuate ignorance. So even those individuals who may perpetuate a lie, you, I won't necessarily say can't take them serious, but you have to understand that they're dealing with a level of ignorance and there are different levels of ignorance. So from, this, from the lowest level of ignorance, a lie can become the truth. From the highest level of ignorance, the law can be, become law, <laughs> right? You know, I can erase history. If you had a history, it can just totally wipe out whoever um, existed, and it can become the truth of all truths. Not saying that that's the truth, but that's what um, ignorance does. Hmm. Um, so my, my, my family is very much aware of that. Um, we have an understanding of that. Um, there are black people who understand that you're not going to necessarily be able to change people's perception in their view. Um, Christopher Columbus was a, a pirate. He was a, a marauder. Um, he was a murderer. Um, he raped. He plundered. He stole. He was an, a, a, a war criminal. That's not me simply saying 
I don't like white people. I'm simply saying this is what he did, right? <laughs> Those are facts. Um, you know, right? So, um, you know, why, why should we then celebrate his life as being an accomplished individual um, when he has done nothing but murder innocent people with impunity? Um, and so I think it's very disheartening, to say the least, to see people do it. But you have to keep pushing on and knowing that ultimately uh, people are going to be ignorant no matter what. So you're coming up now. You say Brownsville, right? Well, I was great. My, my parents are from Brownsville, but I was, I'm was i from East New York. They lived in East New York, but they're originally from Brownsville. So between East New York and Brownsville, I was ping-ponging back and forth because my family is huge. I have a huge family. So, you know, peanut, Brownsville and East New York is like peanut butter and jelly. You can't have one without the other. Ah, okay. So, so, so mid-80s late 80s, going into the 90s, crack epidemic is, is is bulldozing through. Where are you at and what are you doing? Yeah, that's a great question. So again, trying to fit in. Um, I'm, one thing I did not stop doing was going to school. Again, my parents always stressed the importance of education. So I took advantage of that. I, I, I was like, I'm not going to not go to school. I knew that this was something that my parents wanted. So this was something that I always strove for. So I was always striving for academic, um, you know, excellence, so to speak, right? But it was just the stuff that I was doing on the side, the street yeah. stuff that I was doing on the side, taking unnecessary risks, risks that I didn't have to take. You know, unfortunately, you mentioned the crack epidemic. When I say an epidemic, you know, you know it just as much as I do. Um, it ravaged not only Black America, but it ravaged America, tore America to pieces. Um, I, I hate the fact that, um, and may Allah forgive me, that, you know, you know, we were in the streets um, helping to perpetuate this cycle of self-destruction. Um, so when you ask the question, you know, where were you? Um, I, was, I was juggling both, trying to live a lifestyle where I was trying to be a model, a model child to my parents, feigning as if I'm this good student in school. But behind the scenes, I was in the streets doing stuff I had no business doing. Mm, living um, a double life. Living that double life, trying to serve two masters, so to speak. Yeah. So unfortunately for me, as I mentioned, in terms of like your your reputation, as you continue to do things, you know, it's expected that you're going to have to live up to who you claim to be. So I was getting a little bit of money in the streets. Now we want to see whether or not you want to get some real money. It's one thing to be in your neighborhood trying to panhandle some stuff. Let's go to somebody else's neighborhood and see if you can do the same thing. You know, let's let's go out of town and see if you can get a little bit of money get some of that OT chicken, that, o, that OT bread. Right? So you know I was involved in all of these these um this this ignorance. Um and for me, I realized now that they were simply lessons learned. But yeah, there was a struggle. You know, I went out of town to Baltimore, Maryland. I was I was on the west side of Baltimore. I was out there. I got locked up a few, a few times. Did did a little, little as they say, city biz and, and the juvenile joint. My, my mother had to come to court to come get me. Put on probation. You know, she had to come all the way from New York to the courtroom, and and I put her through a lot. Right, I put my family mm. through a lot because at a young Amen. age, I'm talking about 14, 15, 16 years old, I was in them streets. But again, I didn't have to be in the streets. Um, I could have just stayed at home and did homework and wrote assignments and. And, and read books and 
and try to be the best student that I could possibly possibly be. I know a lot. Yeah, of we were too friends. we were too cool for that shit, man. Um, you know, it, it wasn't that. I just think that we just made poor decisions. Like, yeah, you know, we made horrible decisions, bro. And I know friends from from my age group who are doing exceptionally. Right? They never sat in a prison. They never had handcuffs put on them. Um, they're college graduates. They, they, some have masters. Some have PhDs. Some have credentials. You know big homes they're doing great things some live out the country some live in dubai some live here some live people are doing great things it's just that they made better better choices and i just chose to make some poor choices that ultimately led to my demise me getting incarcerated once you get incarcerated you know this from experience it seems like once them cuffs go on the first time it's over after that and that's what happened to me once them cuffs went on the first time it was like a snowball effect it went from one one incident almost shades locked up with some drugs locked up for some more drugs almost she got locked up for, for, for putting his hands on somebody almost she got locked up with a weapon almost she got locked up for shooting some and it just got worse and worse and worse and it just you know it just metastasized until you know it, it was a cancer and i be, i became to eat at my own self um, and that's ultimately what led to my demise so you 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 sold drugs What's 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 the 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 biggest you've got to like? What was you carrying weight? Was you traveling with weight? Nah, it wasn't even like that. I was a petty crook, man. You know, mm. you would think that I was this big, elaborate. You know, I was a part of some sophisticated unit. I'm not even gonna sit up here and try to claim to be like that. I was I was a petty criminal, man, operating with illusions of grandeur. You know, trying to trick myself into believing that the little bit of money that I was getting from uh, 62 grams or 125 grams. I thought this was, I thought I was Pablo Escobar. Yeah, let's get it. I'm yeah. getting this, you know, I'm, I'm getting big time money. And um, I didn't realize that. And your guys are, you're, you're just coming off the tail end of, of uh, Frank Lucas, Nicky Barnes, all yeah, of those, those, those guys. guys are... Those guys was, those guys was the real heavy, you know, those 70s guys. Um, um, nowhere was I even, I, I couldn't even, in terms of that street life, um, not to, in terms of what they were involved in. I couldn't even sit in the same building with them. I was a, a a below average individual trying to act like I was somebody other than myself. Um, trying to do things that was beyond my ability to understand at the time. Um, so I'm not going to sit up here and claim as if, don't get it twisted. There was a lot of money flowing in that black underground, right? Um, and 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 I and I and I and I was one of those individuals who had my know who's fortunate to touch it right but i wasn't those type of individuals that was getting a substantial amount of money where um you know you know you to put me on yeah. some big documentary you're just or something like that. you're just on the outside catching the flutter of the of the bills as they fall whether whether in they're making it rain i know I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to get a little bit and, and keep it yeah. moving and um you know i, I realized that i was nothing but a pawn in the game um, I was just a pawn, and 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 I thought I was moving my my own pieces, but I didn't realize that somebody else was making moves for me. Moshe, have you hurt people? Unfortunately, yes. How bad have you hurt people? Well, see, there are different forms of pain. There are different forms of hurt. Um, you know, you know, living the street life, you know that you unfortunately you have to hurt, right? Um. But I think arguably the, the, the pain that you, you, you inflict upon those the most is the people who love you, um, people who have high expectations of you. The pain that you cause mm. them 
when they have these these expectations and you continuously, you know, you shatter those expectations. So when I look at my mother, my late mother, my late father, um, I think is is there no more two people on 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 this earth at the time that I hurt more than my parents. Um, not, that's not the, the lesson any of the physical harm that I may have caused any 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 victim of a crime. Um, and that you know, and again, may Allah forgive me, and and I don't want to sit up here and glorify any of any of my foolishness. Um, I ask that Allah forgives me every day for anything that I may have done to anybody. Um, but in terms of like the the emotional and the psychological pain that you bring your parents when they raise you a certain way and all they want to see is you be, you know, you come up with those, those jewels, those pearls mm -hmm. that they've given you and they want to see you blossom and, and become something great. It's nothing more demoralizing and, and more hurtful than your parents knowing that when someone asks you, they have to tell you, you know, them that you're in a prison cell. Um, and I think that I've hurt them the most. You know, that's how my father found out about me was um, mm. they, they raided me at a, like 7.30 in the morning and they had us in a tank and they had me in a tank till about 7 o'clock that night without mm. no phone call, nothing like that. And they had all the press there. They had, you know, the mayor there. They had everybody there with all these cameras. My father was sitting there watching the 6 o'clock news, right? The 6 <laughs> o'clock news eating dinner. And here I go. They, they flash across the screen, you know, large cocaine bust. And, and out of all the people, they got to show me, right? They got to show me as they're walking through. And this is how my father had to find out about the, what I was into. But you're, 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 you're dead on, man. You know, it's, it's, it's not the, the, the physical pain that we, we cause people, but it's the, it's the psychological pain that we cause people, the emotional pain as well. And, I come from psychological abuse and I know that I would rather take a beating all day than I would psychological abuse, you know, because yes. that lingers with you and that, and that, and that alters your life, you know? So as a kid, do you think that maybe you, you, you couldn't maybe uh, like match up to your father? Like you couldn't, like your father's bar was so high that maybe you couldn't, you felt as a kid, you just couldn't or didn't know how to like match that bar. And maybe that's what made you go sideways, kind of just like, you know what, whatever, I'm not even going to try. You know, that's a great question, but I, I would say no. And, and the reason why is because my father always pushed us to be greater than him, right? You know, he was a great man and, 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 and nobody's going to deny that he was a great, great man. And I, I don't think that that was a factor. I tried to come up with all type of reasons as to why I made the decisions that I made, the poor decisions that I made as a child, right? Um, I sat in that cell for many years trying to figure out why is it that you chose to make the decisions that you made? What was your psyche behind making these decisions? And never did it, it, it come to my, my, my mind that my reason for doing this was because I was I could not measure up to the stature of my father. And the reason why, as I just explained, um, my father did everything in his power to teach us who we were. So he said to me as a young age, you know, he, he gave me the name Moshe and he wanted me to understand what that name meant. You know, he wanted me to understand that your name is Hebrew for Moses. You know, Moses was a prophet. Moses was a great man. You need to understand who Moses was, what his reason for living was, 
He came here with a purpose to do something and he did it while he was alive. And now you are here in your time and you have a responsibility to do as well. Um, he may not have said it in those words, mm-hmm. but as he continued to drop jewels upon jewels upon me, it was, it was until I was too late that I began to really appreciate and understand the magnitude of what my role and responsibility was. But I would have to say no to your question. No, my brother. Mm. So, okay, moving forward, you, you, you're, you're in the crimes, you're hurting people. Um, your first experience going to jail, what happened that day? Take me through you getting arrested and going to jail your first time. How old was you? All right, so... Are you just talking about having handcuffs put on me? Are you just talking about like going to jail? Like you locked your up? first time in the clink where you locked up where, where, yeah, there's no going home that night. Oh yeah. I would, so this would, this would be, I was in Baltimore, Maryland and I just happened to be, you know, in possession of some drugs. It caught some drugs on me. And unfortunately they sent me to a place called boys village. And it was called, um, the Sheltonham youth facility. I believe it's in mm. Sheltonham, Maryland. Um, being from New York, you know, we didn't, we were not liked by Baltimore um, residents, not all, but the individuals in the streets, they didn't like us. Um, you know, we were in their neighborhoods telling them what, what they should do in their own neighborhoods, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was in between Baltimore dudes or Maryland individuals not liking New York um, brothers. And then I was in the mix of D.C. dudes not liking Maryland dudes. But then D.C. dudes hating New York individuals and also Virginia individuals not liking either of those two and then them not liking us. So for me, getting locked up for the first time, they put me in a building called Six Building. It was called Holdover. This was like the reception area. So they had me up in here. And, of course, I'm from New York. I'm the little guy from New York. So nobody calls me by my name. Everybody calling me New York. Mm-hmm. And I had to deal with that. Um, and I fought like you wouldn't imagine. I fought every time I came out the cell, literally, for the phone, to watch TV, to stand in this corner, to be by myself. Somebody always wanted to say something in New York. Yo, New York, what you doing today, man? Hey, man, yo, yo, New York, come here, man. Hey, man, yo, sing me one of them songs from New York. Sing me one of them Rakim songs. I fought for that, stuff like that. I got jumped a lot, right? So that experience was tough for me, man. People don't realize that. So while everybody was going through the DFYs in New York, um, unfortunately, I didn't have to go to Spofford and DFYs and go to Tryon and stuff like that. Some of my street, my street crimes, that's that's the itinerary that they took. That's the that's the the, the the incarcerated route that they took. For me, I didn't take that route. I took a more non-traditional approach. I was getting locked up out of town, getting yeah. jumped by country boys out of out of state, right? And um, that experience was rough for me, but I was fortunate to know individuals in the streets who also got busy, and they was from the Baltimore streets as well, that they was a part of my team. Um, my man got killed, though, by police out there, but uh, when I was fighting, like you wouldn't imagine, he ended up coming up behind me. His name was Bud, my man Bud, and um, I was moving from building to building, so I went from six buildings, and I went to eight buildings, and I remember being in eight building one time. I was in recreation pen. And my man Bud had just came in getting locked up. And he called over to me, man, and he was like, yo, man, I'm hearing that they trying to give you some problems over there because you're from New York. Man, don't worry about it. I'm a record player. So next thing I know, 
Everybody coming up to me, talking about, hey, New York, man, you want some snacks? Yo, New York, you want this, you want? I said, damn, my boy Bud, get busy. But it also was because, you know, he was he knew that language. He knew the the vernacular. He knew the language of the people. Um, He had a reputation of getting busy. And these individuals knew I wasn't a sucker. My only crime was I was just from New York. So I ended up doing two skit bids out there. One time I got locked, I did about 60 days. Another time I did like 90 days. And from those two bids, the first time my mother had to come get me from court because technically I was a minor. All right, at the time I was about to turn 17 years old, but I was 16, mm. right? Getting locked up out there. So they, they didn't, they, their system is they didn't send you to the adult jail. They would send you to the, to the juvenile joints. And that's how I ended up going to what was known as Boys Village. And Boys Village was a very, very, very serious spot. Um, a lot of people didn't survive there. Individuals was getting killed up in there. I'm talking about young adolescents was killing dudes. Um, but unfortunately, I was thankful by the grace and mercy of Allah that he spared me, and I was able to use that experience to, to make me stronger uh, moving forward. What was the the white to black ratio? Wow. Um, and and um, that's, a, that's, yo, I don't even remember there being any white people in Boys Village. Not to suggest that this was, but it was so predominantly black that I don't remember any white people. And if there so was, it would have been He didn't stand a hard. chance. They would have been hard for basically coming in. I, you know, if I was from New York and I had issues and I was black, I'm almost certain that somebody white, you know, they would have been freaking, oh my God, that would have been horrible. That would have been really bad. Do you think the courts know that and, and don't send white kids to that school for that reason? Do you think That's they punish them question. differently? I don't know that they... I don't know if that's a factor as to why they don't do that. I can right. say that not sending them to, to the institution itself is a factor. You know, it's a reason why they don't want them to even go in there in the first place. But yeah. that being the reason because they're white, they don't want them to be around black people. No, I don't think that that's related to it. I just think that it has a more sinister, um, more sinister scheme than that. So you get out of the, out of the boys um, gladiator school. What yeah. happens then? How so did you feel? How did you feel the first night that you got locked up and that door locked on you and you couldn't go home? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I got some serious thoughts on that. I, I, the first thought was like, I'm, I'm, I'm giving up this life of crime, dog. Like, I'm, like, I don't want to be in okay, right? Um, I wasn't on some, yeah, I did it, I made it. Nah, I want it out now, right? I want to get out now, and I want out now, right? But I also was smart enough to know at that age the rules that accompany that process. Um, I didn't know the political dynamics associated hmm. with the system and how it's structured, but I knew enough to know that, you know, while you're here, there has to be a court proceeding. They have to conduct that proceeding, and it's going to be predicated based on the fact that you don't have a criminal history, you're a child. You know, I knew that enough to know that I wasn't going to be sitting up in there for 20 years, right? So, but to your, to your question, I mean, I, I, I wasn't emboldened. That came after I was released, mm. um, you know, because while I was there, I was doing push-ups every day, sit-ups. I was getting right. So I was up in there fighting every day. So when I came home, when I got released after a little 45, 50 days, I was looking like a little, I was looking like something. So, you know, when I, got, when I saw that response, I was like, okay. But, yeah. you know, it was, it was, it was different. It was, it was like, okay, you know what? Just a touch of t- a touch of power, just a little bit of touch just of respect. You know what I'm saying? That power, yeah, can drive you insane. So yeah. I, I, but but prison, prison, there was nothing I wanted, no place I wanted to be, not at all. So, 
how did you land your first stint in prison? Oh, unfortunately. So I coming back to New York, I ended up getting locked up because I got into a, a situation in my high school. I was going to Canarsie at this time. Canarsie is in, um, in Canarsie, Brooklyn. And unfortunately for me, I was helping one of my female friends who would get bullied by some kid in school. And I ended up getting it, getting it on with him, hurting him real bad. So he charged me with assault. And um, I got locked up. I went to Rikers Island. And they gave me six, six, uh, they ended up giving me six month split or six month five year probation bid. And from there, it was like, yo, when I went to Rikers Island, it was like, okay, this is the early 90s. It was lit. Every building was up in smoke. It was like, okay, this ain't Boys Village no more. Now you. Damn. Well, you can't be but what, 20, 21, 19? Nah, this, is, this is before then. Nah, this is before then. Right now, I'm, 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 we, we talking 17 years old. I'm on Rikers Island. Now. You're on Rikers at 17 years old? Yeah, this is a whole different hit here. <laughs> I'm about to turn 18 now. This is a whole different hit. Now, when, you, when you're 16 years old, ain't no boys really. This ain't, this, ain't, this ain't Maryland. No, when you're 16 years old in New York, you're going to Rikers Island. When, you, know, you, you know, you might at 15, I know some 15-year-old kids that went to Rikers Island. Believe it or not, that's another story. But um, that's a true story. But yeah, when you were that young, you either went to Spofford, and then from Spofford, if you were convicted of a crime as a juvenile, you would go to the many different institutions across the state of New York that um, you would either go to Goshen, you would go to Tryon, among other facilities. I'm not familiar with them all, because like I said, I didn't, Harlem Valley was another one. This is where they sent all of the kids who were, but these individuals was 12, 13, 14, 15. That's crazy, when you turn 16, man. you were considered to be an adult. Now, they didn't, they didn't necessarily say you were an adult, but they put you in a place where adults were. So, for instance, C-74, we called it Adolescence at War. It was given that, 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 that pseudonym because it was always something going on in the building. But while you're in the building, there were also adults, there were adult dorms and adult cell blocks in the building. So when you walk to the mess hall, if you did go to the mess hall as an adolescent, you were going to the mess hall with adults. You wasn't going to the mess hall with just your, 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 your adolescent dorm. That came later. Those rules came later. So there was times where you were literally in the mess hall. So if, if a fight or a melee took place in the mess hall and, 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 and the team came in to, to, to shoot mace and gas and all that stuff like that, you were in there with adults. And there's been many times where individuals done popped off on adults. Adolescents, we done got it on with grown mm. men in the mess hall. Yeah. Food fights, throwing food at grown Jets, men. It was man. crazy, right? So this is, how, this is how the island was. You wasn't with no kids, man. You was with men. Um, so that was my first time experience of being on Rikers Island. Um, 17 going on 18 years old. Very, very young. So, and very, uh, I'm sure. And very, very, very frightening. So well, yeah. And, 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 and that's what I, I want to get into because you kind of walk the same steps, not crime-wise, but as far as going into Rikers Island, you walk the same steps as, as, as um, young brother uh, Khalif Browner, right? Khalif Browner, absolutely. That's the little brother. You talk about the little brother that took his life, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so walk me through what his experience was. What was he going through, you know, 
of course, okay. you, you, you can't tell me what he was thinking, but what, 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 what was his environment like? Where was that pressure? You know, well, I can go on what he was thinking based on the documentary evidence that we have that he presented to us. Right. And we do know that he, he was upfront in regards to him not wanting to accept the abuse and the oppression that was going on in the dorms or the cell blocks that he was in. Because according to little Khalif, he was in these dorms or cell blocks. And when he would come there, the culture in the dorms or the cell blocks was that certain individuals couldn't be out and about moving about. They had to be in the day room. Or some individuals who were running the house didn't want these individuals or, or, or other residents of the dorm in the day room. They had to go lock in their cells. So essentially, it would just be the individuals who are allegedly running the house out in the day room or on the galleries. So they're being told to do certain stuff that they didn't want to do, whether it was giving up phone time or going to commissary and giving up their goods. And so Khalif, he wasn't a gang member. He wasn't a, a part of any gang or what have you. But for him, he just didn't want to be a part of that culture anyway. The only thing he wanted was to get the hell out of prison. So he didn't want to. And the officers, what made it even worse was that you had officers now who were working in cahoots with certain certain detainees and was allowing these detainees to do stuff. So they just turned a blind eye and allowed individuals to run rampant in the crib. So dudes get beat up and jumped in the back. Then the officers just turned their blind eye. And this, this is what Khalid didn't want to be a part of. He's like, I'm not... I'm not a part of it. So he got into a lot of fights going from dorm to dorm and everywhere he went, his reputation kept being built that he was somebody who wasn't with it. That's why if you ever remember him saying that, he just kept saying, yo, I, I wasn't with it. I, I wasn't down with it. I would Not being with it meant that you were an outcast. Not being with it meant that you were really the one that was fighting up for your beliefs, that you was fighting up for what was right. But everybody else that was involved in the culture of oppression and abuse was trying to make these individuals out to be the individuals who were the bad guys. Khalif was a, a real stand-up young man. Um, and he just, unfortunately for him, he couldn't deal with the stress that accompanied the process of being incarcerated because he spent a lot of his time, the three and some, some odd years on Rikers Island, he spent majority of that in, in solitary confinement. So for somebody who hasn't been in those conditions, they would never know the mental impact that one endures on a daily basis and the struggle one is going through to deal with themselves in those circumstances. And he just couldn't deal with the, um, the pressure of the, the, the circumstances, the pressure of what was going on around him, whether it was the societal issues, the cultural issues within the prison, his personal issues within himself. You know, so much stuff was going on that he probably just, just it, it became too overwhelming for him. So I could say, although... I don't know exactly what was in his head to your point. I do know that he was under some very stressful circumstances. Um, and um, although he was in society later on, he just he just couldn't deal with it, unfortunately. Let's talk about that knowledge a little bit. Let's talk about that knowledge and that, and that pressure, right? Because um, you and I had talked previously and mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. made it aware that, you know, you spent a great deal of time in solitary confinement as well. Absolutely. Um, and, and, uh, it's imperative of you to 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 discuss, you know, yeah. what 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 solitary confinement does to to a human being. Oh, so, 
your first time going into solitary, how, how did you get to solitary and walk me through that experience of being in prison, in okay. prison? So, you know, like you said, man, you know, I got sent to, we call solitary confinement on Rikers Island, we call it the Bing. I got sent there from HDM uh, back in 1998. This was actually my first time going into the Bing. Prior to being on Rikers Island in my previous time, as an, as an adolescent, I was never in the being as an adolescent. But as an adult, this was my first time of actually being in a cell within a cell. Now, out of state, when I told you that I was locked up in Maryland, they would lock you up for, let's say, a weekend. You know, you had to stay in your cell because you was fighting all the time. Yeah, they would yeah. lock you up for a week. You know, you would have to, you would, you would face that. So that was like really my first experience of that. But being that, there wasn't too much stress associated with it. Um, I guess because I knew I didn't really appreciate the magnitude of what was happening to me at that moment. Um, I still was young. I was ignorant to a lot of stuff. So although I was in a cell, it, it really didn't weigh on me as much, right? That came later. Um, and, and, and when I was an adult now, and I realized the impact that I had on uh, or my incarceration, the adverse impact that it had on my loved one, was when I began to really appreciate the space that I was in. And when I got put into solitary confinement of now walking into, at the time, what was known as OBCC, um, the Bing, it was like, you know you're in the Bing. When you get there, you got your toilet to the left, you got your sink where the water's coming out, and you got mm -hmm. a bed that's pretty much made out of the concrete slab in the wall and one window, um, one little small mattress, little small piece of soap, little small toothbrush, and you on your way right now. You're lucky if you get a pillow. And you better keep your mouth shut because if you're lucky, you got a mattress, right? So this is the type of situation that you're faced with, where you're now you're locked up in that cell for 23 hours a day. In the Bing, we were in a spot that had 50 cells, all right? You had 25 on the bottom. I think it's 100 cells. I apologize. 50, 25 50. on the bottom. No, I'm, I'm bugging. 25 on the bottom, 25 at the top. Cells 1 through 13, 14 through 25, 26 to 38, 39 through 50. See how fast that court came back? I'm trying to forget it, but I don't want to. But it's 50 individuals in there. So you got a total of five floors. So the building, when you walk to the building, it's actually looking like a project building, right? It's five stories with the exception of one side on the first floor and one side on the on the second floor, and another side on the third floor, I believe. Every other spot is being occupied by fifty individuals, with the exception of another on the on the third on the third um floor as well. So and the Bing me, is always full. The Bing when I was there was always full. It was never always empty. full. Now now we we're seeing thank, thankfully to Hulk Solitary, Hulk Solitary, and among other groups that have struggled and fought on the front lines to putting into solitary confinement, we're starting to see many of the boxes around the state of New York, 23-hour lockdown uh, is now a place that is not as jam-packed as it was, was in the 90s. When I, was, when I was on Rikers Island, the Bing was always full. So going there for me, it was definitely a, psych, a psychological issue for me, um, a struggle for me, because one, I'm now thinking about my family on the outside. Um, the harm that I caused them during my, or, of being incarcerated. 
being incarcerated now for a serious offense, which could essentially take me off the streets for 30 years. This is when now the weight of my decisions began to have a different effect on my psychological makeup. So you're in solitary and how long, how long was your first, your first thing in the bin? I can't say off of hand. Um, um, uh, First was, was it weeks, weeks, months? Nah, nah, it was months. It was probably like six months. Like six mm. months. It was like about six months. Um, I, I can't give you a definitive count, but I'm going I'm to roughly, I'm going to estimate roughly and say it was about six months. I, I, I so six months. And now in the Bing, right, how much human contact do you have? Well, you're, 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 everything about the Bing the, is, is, is limited contact with, other human being. Your reason for mm -hmm. being in the bing or the box in solitary in this case is to limit your ability to interact with others because you've misbehaved in prison. You no longer have the right to be um, in the presence of other individuals where you can interact with them physically. So how that actually looks is that um, you're in the cell essentially for 23 hours a day. So the only time you're actually able to touch someone else is when either the officer is putting handcuffs on you when, when you're in the cell and you're trying to come out the cell. Because every time you come out the cell, you pretty much got handcuffs to your back. You're not coming out the cell without cuffs on you. When you go on a visit to go see your loved ones, you're not in a, a humane space. You're actually in a cage. It's like a dog kennel. And your family member is in the dog kennel with you. They occupy the dog kennel with you. So there is physical intimacy and love with your family but if you're able to touch the next person in the next cage because he might be your man you're able to do that right or if you have let's say a, a co-defendant it might be that you and your co-defendant together could go on a visit whatever the case may be like that with family and loved ones who may come to see you together like what was happening with my case right me me and my brother you know my, my co-defendant we would go down together family coming up to see us and everything like that so we're together in that space um, but if one of us is too violent, like in many cases it was, then it, we wouldn't even be in that space. We would be in our own individual cage. Um, so that's the only physical interaction. Now, there are, there, there are instances in which you can try to physically harm others, um, but they were few and far between. But when those incidents did happen, they happened. You knew how they were happening. That, that was your only way of interacting with an in, in, in individual. Only way. Whether in court on 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 the bus, it was it was very limited. But you did. What yeah, it's you very limited. And and I mean, I used to sit there for mostly no less than than three or four hours, right? Throwing a string across a hallway, trying to get a string all the mm. way down to the next doorway mm. because he got a shot of coffee down there, and they ain't had no coffee in two days, and my head is mm. pounding, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I'm just down on the floor. For real, I, I'll sit here and I'll reflect back on, on some of the things that, that I used to do just to get by through a day. And I would mm. be on this floor for hours with mm. a little piece of like an envelope and a string trying to shoot it up under the door. And you'd have to pull it back and then shoot it up under the door. Sometimes you'd have to shoot it across the hall and he'd have to shoot it just for a shot of coffee. Mm. You know, I, I've been there and and and. And I could tell you this, anybody that needs human interaction that cannot be alone with just their thoughts, right, is going to 
is is going to damage that person. I, I, I've seen, um, and I'm sure that you have as well, but I, I've seen people where they would just stay on the door. They wouldn't even come off the door because they're just constantly hollering off out of the door just to just to converse with somebody. You know, anybody, any officer, anybody would walk by the door. They would jump out of the bed and run to the door just to try to, hey, officer, officer, officer. It, 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 I, I've seen people pace back and forth for hours in the room, you know, like you would see a, a lion in a cage, you know, Absolutely. it's, it's, it definitely has a serious psychological effect on somebody. And the thing of it is, is what I found out, which I didn't even know until I got out to Texas and I'm, and I'm dealing with gang compounds because most of my time was done, you know, over on the East coast. Um, and I was federal, you were state. So, um, the further west you get, the more the compound is more gang oriented, more politics. Absolutely. So I got I got out west, and and now I'm dealing with some real racist people, and um, and it, it was a it was just a it was just a different it was a different breed. Come to find out, out in Texas, if you're gang affiliated, gang oriented, you know, they keep you in the shoe, they keep you locked down, um, period. There's as long as your state time is, you're in confinement. So you have guys that are in confinement for 15, 20 years, right? Coming out and then doing a, a federal sentence right behind the state sentence. And there is no lockdown like that in the Fed. So these guys are coming out of solitary confinement after 10, 15 years and being let loose on a compound, right? A high political compound. And these dudes are just animals. They're animals. I can't even begin to tell you what these dudes do to people. They're animals. They're 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 desensitized. They're 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 psychopaths. It's like they have no empathy for anything. Absolutely. I can, you know? I can definitely relate to that because you mentioned, you know, you and I we spoke about this before. About and you just mentioned it about spending such a long period of time in solitary confinement. I was fortunate not to spend, of the 22 years of being incarcerated, I was fortunate not to spend 15 years straight. So the most that I ever spent in SHU at one time for one period was five years straight. From 2003 Damn. to 2008, I did straight, straight, a straight, straight stretch in 23-hour lockdown. What was that for? Oh, that was because, uh, so we were in Auburn back in 2002, 2003. And, you know, being associated with the gang subculture at the time, um, being Don Moon, you know, at the time, um, I was I was living a lifestyle in which we were supposed to be adhering to a code in which um, if anybody oppresses us, then we were supposed to be fighting against that oppression. Um, and it just so happened that the officers in the jail were the biggest oppressors in the jail. So they ended up, they already had a culture in the jail. These particular officers, these staff members, they already had a culture in which they would be beating individuals up with impunity. So I knew personally that I wasn't going to tolerate that if anybody from my faction ever got, you know, mistreated. Um, so unfortunately for me, um, we, uh, we had that word that they had had a festival, you know, where families are able to come and stuff like that. And during the festival, one of the homies had got dragged off the, the festival. He got beat up by the officers. So the word came back to us that, yo, one of the homies got jumped by the police. 
So with that being the case, it was like, all right, all right, so this is what we got to do. You know, we got to basically go step to these officers and we got to let them know that, that we're not going to tolerate their abuse in our prison. I mean, um, in, in prison. I mean, they're not, we're not going to tolerate this abuse in this prison. Excuse me. And um, it just so happened that a week had went by. I mean, we're getting reports about the homie that was up in the box at the time that, you know, he wasn't doing too well or whatever. Or whatever. And whether or not this was true or not, this played on our decision to basically make a move. So, you know, we were sending word around the jail, like, listen, man, we're about to make a move on these officers here. Man. They keep beating up dudes. A couple of years prior to that, they beat up the old man, B.I., knocked his socket out, uh, uh, dislocated his eye mm. socket, and just all type of stuff that you know happens under those circumstances. You know, you have these, unfortunately, up, up north, you got these white racist officers. Um, and they, they run around beating up individuals like they their own gang within a within the gang subculture. So coming from where we come from, you know, we men. So we gotta, you know, we gotta handle these individuals. So uh, myself and other other comrades, we got together and we were just like, yo, we're gonna step to these individuals. And that's just what happened. Um we ended up stepping to our business and the, the plan was to basically put our hands on as many white officers as possible and, and give them the business. Um and, 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 and unfortunately that's what happened and um I ended up getting a total of, of 90 months in SHU because of that. So they gave me seven and a half years. They gave me seven years, but the officers who searched my cell afterwards ended up setting me up with a weapon in my cell. They put a weapon in there, said I had a weapon in the light fixture. Come on, you know good and well, you come to the spot, you look through light fixtures, you look through everything, right? So I was in that spot for, for quite some time, um, for months, in fact, and they just basically said I had a weapon in the light fixture. So they ended up giving me a total of, seven and a half years in the box. Um, and I, I ended up doing five years off of that from 2003 to 2008. I was in Southport Correctional Facility. Um, I didn't do the seven and a half because due to time cuts, um, among other things that um, you're able to get under those circumstances, that worked in my favor. So I was able to get out the box. But cumulatively, um, of the 22 years, I spent approximately about 15 years of those 22 years in the, in the box for various related offenses. Um, from multiple assaults on staff, weapons, um, gang-related material, you know, all the stuff that comes with that culture of living that life. Um, I, I definitely was all in, so there's no question about that. Definitely. Was there ever a time in your life, or even now, that you, um, you just don't like white people, or you just looked at white people as just some you didn't even want to deal with white people no so that's a great that's a great question so and, and, and the beautiful thing about that is that you know my parents are just really amazing man you know my mother had white friends my pops had white friends and you know my, my my mother's white friends could whip my butt just like my mother's black friends right in fact her best friend was was was, was white um she was eastern european she's actually from from, from russia um, an Asian, you know, European, but um, my name was Tanya. She could put hands on me just like my mother did, right? So, so the the the, the notion that that was the case, um, it it just wasn't there. But there was a cynicism regarding the police at an early age, and we knew that the police were occupiers of our community. So we we tried to be very evasive and elude them as much as possible. When they asked us questions, we were very evasive. We we knew that these were authority figures. Um, but moving forward, the only time that I felt like, you know, 
white people just are just horrible, right? Not all in this case, but the officers in prison. Um, that was exacerbated by you're now becoming more familiar with the culture of the world and knowing the role that white people played in terms of our people in America. And now you're looking at it globally and seeing that wherever they may have had their foot, now you kind of feel like, damn, is it like everywhere they go, they just kill people? Um, but as I began to educate myself more, I realized that all cultures at some point oppressed, right? Um, whether white, whether black, etc. So I said to myself, you know what? I'm, I'm going to look at this a little bit more differently. Not to say that what I'm saying ain't right. You know, white, white people have put some pain in in this world, right? Um, and this is something that I, I've had to come to terms with. But I've never felt that way at white people per se. Um, but directed at certain white people, there's no question about that, that I've had that energy in my heart that I was just like, I cannot stand you. I dislike you. I may not hate you but I want to put my hands on you and I want to hurt you real bad because you are just racist and it's disgusting. And the reason I say that because, you know, under the 23 hour lockdown, I've saw officers who only took a peace, uh, uh, they only peace officer. They took a civil service exam, right. To become a, 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 a servant of the law. Yeah. And they would literally walk by another human being cell and not feed them just because this individual was black. And it was like, why would you not feed this man? And this is a, a human being in that cell. But so the, the society doesn't notice. Society has no knowledge of what's going on about these upstanding citizens, these individuals who might be at a Buffalo, Buffalo Bills game, who might be at a Buffalo Sabres game. And the guy that's pumping his, his fist in the air, rooting people on. Is the guy that goes to work every day and that's depriving somebody of their of their human rights. So this is what brought that out of me. Being under those circumstances and seeing blatant abuse and oppression and 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 and, 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 and disgusting behavior from individuals who were in these positions of authority. And I did everything in my power. I said, I'm gonna do everything in my power to let you guys know who Moshe Canty is. And I'm gonna be the individual that you know when you say my name, you're gonna think twice about. When I come to this jail, you know, I got the, the, the ability to shut this whole jail in. I want you to know that. So if I'm going to be in here, you're going to treat me like a man. Um, and, 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 and this is why I ended up spending so many years in that, in that box. But I never felt like that, bro. And I, and I never feel like that now. Did, have you ever saw, um, like, black CEOs attacking white inmates? Absolutely. Yeah. I hate it. Absolutely. They're the worst. So, so would you say that, that, uh, that officers in general, like, well, I guess what I'm trying to get to is, is would you say that, that prisons are, are racist, right? Or is it, is it more like a, almost like a class issue as far as like inmates against cops? Great, great question. I, I think it's a class issue, but I think the environment fosters individuals biases their fears their values an officer may come in and be a white dude and be mad cool you be like yo this dude is all right man 
Only thing you do, you got a job, you come to work every day, you just started, you don't want no problems, man. You're all right, man, you're a good dude. Black, black CEO come by, worse than the white CEO. You be like, yo, man, how you black, man? You acting like that. Yo, I ain't black. I'm French Canadian, as they say, stuff like that, right? We heard all of it, right? So it's like, all right, cool. So is it is it racism in this case? It can't be racism because if I'm black and you black and you mistreating me, then this can't be racist. But if you white and you not mistreating me, then this can't be racist. So yes, it has to be class. But then now flip it now. This officer then now becomes desensitized or indoctrinated over the course of time where now this once cool officer a year later, he on the beat up squad. He looked different. His haircut looked different. He got a crew cut. He got the black gloves in his pocket. He down with the black gloves crew. You like, damn, that dude was cool. What happened? He beating dudes up, calling them the N-word. It's a different environment. So was this always in you? Is it class now? So then you, you have a hard time trying to distinguish whether it's class or race. So they, they're intertwined. They're, there's a marriage between those two. All right? They're not diametrically opposed. They actually work in harmony with each other. So it's very hard sometimes to distinguish between um, class and race. The, the, the prison itself is a place to hold bodies. The manner in which people are placed in these environments could be race, racist. Right? Right. Because That's rich, exact, people, yeah. rich people don't occupy, occupy these prisons, right? It ain't, a, it ain't a million rich people in prison. That, right. would, that would indicate class. There's 13% allegedly 13% of black Americans, black black people in, in, in America, but they make up 57, 60-something percent of the population in prison. That would mean that it has a correlation between, in my, in my opinion, between race and class. Um, but that's that's just my way of seeing things. Um, but there's a lot that comes with that. You know, we could have a whole nother life. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and the thing of it is, is and that's what I say is that, that the the prison structure isn't built to be racist i don't believe right mm -hmm. it was it was built for a purpose it was built to 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 house at first it was built to house the blacks in the beginning so they could finish the railroads because you know the end of slavery came at the worst time you know mm -hmm. and they had to finish all this industrial crap so they they created you know everything that they created at that time but uh, but what I do believe is exactly what you just said, is that it creates an environment for these psychopaths to come in and be who they are. And it gives them free reign to just come in and just beat the hell out of somebody because their wife yelled at them over dinner or Absolutely. <clears throat> uh, just many, many, many instances. So um, I, I, I could talk to you all night, but I know we got to wrap this up. I know you're a working man, too. We got to. So you. you you coming home now, right, um, to, to a completely different world than when you went in. Mm. What are some of the biggest challenges that you're facing now as far as mental-wise? You know, what are some of your triggers? What are some of, of, of just daily emotions that you're dealing with? Yeah, that's, that's yo, thank you for that question right there. So, um, although I don't like to use the term institutionalized, the truth is, is that, you know, spending 22 years in an environment, there is some form of institutionalization. And I'm definitely suffering from the long-term effects of that. Um, there are things that I do where I'm always like, 
you know, looking around, right? They're not a hindrance. They're just a way that we dealt with survival on the inside of keeping our eye on things and always expecting that something may occur. Um, my wife and I, you know, I, I, I say to her some things about um, that may seem out of line. I'll be like, yo, you got to watch out right there. Something can get out of hand right now. She'll be like, what are you talking about? This is not even, this is some little incident that's happening. I'm like, nah, I'm telling you, you can get crazy like in no time. I'm letting you know right now, be careful. Watch, watch yourself over there. She like, she can't understand, right? So for us on the inside, we already know it. when it's about to go down, it's about to go down. It goes down, you see it happening, it's done already, right? You're like, oh, it went down. And it's happening so <laughs> repetitively that we become desensitized to the violence yes. part, right? So the mental part for me has been um, also the the struggle of uh, I, I'm no longer in a cage. So the challenge for me is like when, when my wife tells me to do something or we get into it or something and she's like, well, I, let's go take care of it. I'm like, I'm not doing it. You know, she's like, I don't, I don't like the way it's set. Like, I don't, you know, like, hold on, what's going on? Like, so, you know, you, you, you have to be able to stop in that moment to be like, this is just your wife talking to you. This is not, you're used to somebody always telling you what to do. Hey, we go out and stay, stand in line over there. Stand over there. So as soon as you hear something, hey, you're like, what's going on? You know, like I was driving one time and um, my wife started me. Baby, yo, what's going on? What happened? I'm so used to the, you know, you can't do that, right? Um, so right. these are the things that you over trying to overcome these little issues of of overcoming um, the high intensity of an environment where everything is always going down. Um, so I think that's been my biggest struggle mentally. But I still I still struggle because I still jump out of my sleep. Not that something was happening to me while I was in prison, but um, you know I'm always. You know, I'm always trying to figure out, is everything all right? What's up? You know, trying to get my bearings. And, you know, is the cell search coming? Because, you know, in Comstock, they come in your spot 5 in the morning. You got to be up and ready. You're sleeping with your clothes on. As soon as they run through the door, you got to be ready to fight. You know, the officers come in there 5, 6 deep. You're like, what's up? So you got to be ready. <laughs> this so shit is crazy. You, know, you be asleep. You know what I'm saying? Somebody walk by, you jump up. What's up? Yo, yo what's up? You good? <laughs> I, I, I drove my wife crazy. She's like, this dude, crazy. No. So these are the things that we we, we basically, you know, I, I, I'm struggling with trying to overcome. But they're real. They're real stuff happening in real time. And um, without having these conversations with you and individuals who know, people wouldn't know nothing about it. They would think everything's normal when in reality everything is not. But what has helped me is has been Islam. Islam has been beautiful. Allah has been merciful. It's holy month of Ramadan. And I'm just so thankful of all of everything that I'm able to accomplish, even in spite of those experiences I've, I've, I've had them doing the past. You know, I, I once explained to somebody that trying to explain what you and I and so many other brothers and sisters have went through mm. is, is like trying to explain to somebody that, that has experienced, you know, like somebody that's experienced the Holocaust, right. Mm. And everything that they went through and and mm -hmm. and they're trying to explain to somebody or mm -hmm. or you know just just slavery or mm -hmm. it's like trying to 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 explain a picture you know you take a picture of something and and the picture when you look at it you're like man this picture i i can't describe how beautiful of a scene it was you know what i mean mm -hmm. the picture mm -hmm. don't mm -hmm. what we went through unless you've experienced that 
no one can understand. They won't understand that. They, they can't. They cannot understand. And, and we always get told, you know, like one of the biggest quirks I get told is you've been home four years now. You know, come on. You've been, you've been home four years. Enough's enough. You shouldn't still be having issues, things of that nature. But like a lot of the issues that you described, I still have. You know what I mean? Um, I, I only get maybe four or five hours of sleep a night. If that. You know? and, and I'm up. If if I go to sleep at one o'clock in the morning, I'm up at four thirty every morning. I don't have to set an alarm. It's clockwork. I just That's wake up story. at four thirty, right? Um, and the the PTSD, the anxiety. I I I'm in the bathroom uh, several days ago, you know, and I have the door shut and I got the music. I'm in my zone, right? I'm just zoning in the bathroom. And she came and opened the door and entered into the bathroom. And I didn't see her until I turned around and just her being there. I mean, I, I, I struck out like, because it was just that instant, like just of somebody being right on top of me without me knowing it just, it it, it was just an instant. Like I, and I, I grabbed her and I'm like, you know, you can't do that. Please don't ever walk up behind me like that without yeah. me knowing do you know yeah. what i mean because i flash it's it's it it happens before i even understand what's happening you know because of like you say waking up every day right and not knowing what's going to happen that day not knowing what's going to happen when you walk to the chow hall not knowing what's going to happen when you walk back from the chow hall not knowing what's waiting in your cell for you just every day for years and years and years living under that, not knowing what the next moment is going to bring. Because like you said, shit can pop off at any moment. At any moment, man, you're dealing with psychopaths. You're dealing with people who've been confined in solitary confinement. For those of you that don't understand solitary confinement, let me explain to you like this. You're already in prison, right? Your, your mentality, your mentality, you're already in prison. These people come to wherever you're at with handcuffs, right? And nine times out of 10, it's a ride gear, whatever the incident is, but they come with handcuffs. They handcuff you on the compound. They walk you across the con. Now this is in all compounds because of course there's safety issues or whatnot of that as well. But they walk you, they walk you across the compound in handcuffs to a building that is another prison inside of the prison. So you have to go through electronic doors and and then that's it. When you go through these doors and they shut, you don't see anybody else. If you want a good picture, you can go to my homepage, Thomas Free Me, and 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 what I have there at the top. It's just a hallway of cells. And 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 it's that's it. It's like an endless hallway. Mm. And it's, I, I don't know how to explain it after that. It's just, everything changes, you know, and my life, my life altered in solitary confinement. My you know, it, it, it broke me down to the point to where I had to make a decision, you know, and, and thank God I, I, I chose wisely, you know? So Moshe, we got to get back together. Um, I want to run another one with you. Uh, the next one I want to run with, I, I really wanted to get into the stigma of the black Muslim. Yes, um, we can talk about that. I, I want to get into, um, because as for me, and, and I know a majority of white people, 
when they hear black Muslim, the first thing we hear of is racism. They're racist. Those are racist people. So I really want to break down all the different divisions of Muslim, what they mean, and, and so on. So we can try to educate and we can try to bring this divide together some. You know, I, 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 I respect the hell out of you. I look at you. I see a man of the cloth. I see a man of discipline. I see a humble man. I don't see anywhere where this stigma of anger, aggression, um, lies, deceit, all of this. I don't see none of that. I see a humble man who just is loving his family and is just trying to be as close to God as he can get, you know? And these are the kind of divides that I want to, to come across. I don't have to, I don't have to like you. I don't have to appreciate or value your life, but I do have to respect the fact that you're a human being and you're living your own life, you know? And, and that's what we have to do. If we're going to come together as American citizens, right? And we're going to take back our nation and take control of our nation as citizens. I have to be able to look at you and respect you as the man that you are. I can go out and have my own little white kids and you can have your black kids. And, and, and that's it. You know, I, I, I mean, for me personally, I chose to mix my blood because that's, that's just what I wanted to do. And each man is, is different for what they want to do, but it's just respect each man. You're, you're struggling like me. You're trying to pay your bills and struggle and take care of your family just like I am. And just because you're doing it in a different light than I am, that doesn't mean that I have to hate you for that. You know? Absolutely. So we have to stop this stuff. I, I, I beg my Americans, please stop looting, stop rioting, stop hurting people. You're feeding an agenda. You're feeding an agenda. You're making all of us look bad. And you're creating more stigma for what we're trying to overcome. All you're doing is allowing these people to take more of our rights away. I'm asking you, please stop. Come together. Each community leader, step up. Start gathering your communities together. Start working out these differences like me and this gentleman here are. And come together and find a baseline. Always find a baseline. People are going to disagree, but you have to agree on something. You find where you agree on, you build out. So Moshe, until the next time, brother. I'm going to give you the floor to finish up. You can plug your, your, your organization, whatever you want to plug, partner. Well, I just, first I want to thank you, man, for affording me the opportunity to speak on your platform. Um, I think the work that you're doing is, is very honorable. Um, it's very, very needed because our nation right now is, is, is suffering from so many different ills. So for you to be able to bridge the gap between your community, my community, and all communities is very, very important. So I truly, truly appreciate that, man. Again, I'm thankful for it. Um, I, I currently work for an organization called the Center for Community Alternative. I'm a, um, an employment coordinator. Um, outside of that, um, I'm helping with, obviously on a daily basis, youth who are impacted by the criminal justice system, helping with helping them gain meaningful skills so that they can ultimately use them to the workforce. Um, in addition to that, I, I, my wife and I, we, we, we are both CEOs of our, our company called Conscious Mind Ventures, LLC. That's K-O-N-C-H-E-S-S, -S, Conscious Mind Ventures. Um, and, and this company, what we do is a, a consulting company, but we're going to be using our voice to speak to the youth around the country to try to help them make 
better moved on their proverbial their proverbial um chess chessboard. Um and, and we're using my 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 experiences, my wife's experience and the experiences of others to show that um you can make a very poor decision that can cost you daily. So we we equate the life we live with the game of chess and the hope is that you know we look at ourselves as making moves. Um, I'm also the host of the podcast Conscious Move, which can be heard on uh, on a number of platforms, Anchor, um, Apple, um, Overcast, uh, among other platforms. And that platform is designed to to, to teach um, about the issues affecting Black Americans in particular, but society in general and the world that we're living in. Try to help us do exactly what you're doing. Come to terms with with these differences, these issues, these issues ranging from from, from from hate, from race-based hate to issues of diabetes and the criminal justice system. We touch upon various topics. I haven't been active in a while because um, I've been deeply involved in my schoolwork. I just took five classes this semester and I'm about to graduate in the next couple of weeks. And so, congratulations, um, partner. Yeah, thank you, my brother. I've been very, very active since coming home last September. Um, I'm continuing to do the work that needs to be done to try to help save as many lives as possible. Um, but again, my brother, I'm, I'm thankful for being here and, you know, reach out to me and I, I never got a problem with coming back and sitting on your platform and we discussing whatever we need to discuss to try to try to make a better understanding understood amongst us, my brother. Amen, man. And, and so I say, I say, Lakeum, I say, Asalaam Alaikum. Yes. And I say, Wa Alaikum Salaam. Okay. Now watch this, America. Watch this. Watch how we do this. Now you heard this man's story, right? You know my story. Now watch how we do this. My brother. Yes, sir. Thank you for your service. Thank you for changing your life, right? And and coming to grips with who you are. For you doing what you've done, I can express my love for you. And I can tell you that I love you for doing that because I'm a human being and you're a human being. And I understand on a spiritual level what we're here for. We're all here to progress and get closer to God. And the only way that we can do that is through love, love of companionship, love of God. So I have no issues expressing my love towards you. And and I wish you the best. I wish you many blessings for you and your family until the next time, partner, okay? Thank you, my brother. I appreciate it, man. Thank you, man. Those feelings are mutual, brother. Thank you.